and welcome to another Michelle Meow show from the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Carolyn Weisinger, and I'm the education coordinator here at the Commonwealth Club. I'm also the president of San Francisco Pride, so happy Pride, everyone. Even though we're in our second year of not being able to have a Pride Parade here in San Francisco, the board and staff of San Francisco Pride has worked so hard to bring all the things that you have seen for years here for San Francisco Pride. That includes our incredible community grand marshals. We are so excited here at the Commonwealth Club to celebrate two of our community grand marshals here today, Melanie and Melora Green from the African American Arts and Cultural Complex here in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club has produced more than 550 online programs since the pandemic started, and we'll continue to share our events online in the future. But we're excited to be opening up again to in-person events. So head over to the commonwealthclub.org events to see what we have coming up online and in person. We want to thank Gilead Sciences for generously underwriting today's program. Now it's my pleasure to hand over this program to today's host, Michelle Meow, the producer and host of the Michelle Meow Show, a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and former president of San Francisco Pride, as well as John Zipperer, is who is our club's vice president of media and editorial. And this and is the producer and host of club's week-to-week -week political roundtables. Take it away, Michelle and John. Carolyn, thank you so much, and happy Pride to you, and thank you for all that you do for our community. Happy Pride, everyone. If you're joining for the first time, the Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. I'm so excited to be in partnership with the Commonwealth Club, who provides these uh, platforms for us to have these important conversations and bring incredible thought leaders to the club's platform. And so without further ado, you're all here for these two inspirational people who are making San Francisco so great, but also making it a better place for all of us everywhere. So Melanie Malora, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for celebrating Pride with us. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. This is amazing. <laughs> it's tradition here on the program that we ask this question, um, but I'm very excited about asking both of you this question. I had a lot of, thought of uh, thoughts about this. I'm excited to hear your coming out story. So let's let's start with that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, well, you know, I'll just start with that neither of us intended to come out, so to speak. It wasn't like we grew up in a context where being queer was normalized or was even really available um, as an expression and moreover for women. So we moved to San Francisco. We lived with our Aunt Annie Pride, rest in power. And um, we shared a room. I think um, both of us had crushes on people. And we were talking about um, folks that we were meeting and just trying to normalize things. And I think that we both got to a place where the conversations needed to eclipse. <laughs> and so, you know, we were literally laying back to back. And uh, I said, um, you know, Laura, I think I need to tell you something. And I was like, I need, I was like, I need to tell you something too. And um, she said, I'm, no, she said, I'm bi. I said, I, I you think know, you I, have to I, think in front. She's like, I, <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm bisexual. And then I said, well, I'm gay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what, 
what happened after that was a moment of safety and normalcy. And for someone that you grow up with and you've known all your life, it's the scariest thing to say something when you think that they're not going to be that anymore. I didn't know how Melanie felt. We both grew up in the church. We didn't move out here to, you know, finally break free and come out. Nothing. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't move here for that. We moved here to study film, and our plan was to move to L.A. We were going to be the female version of the Hughes brothers. And so that was our trajectory. Um, so, you know, meeting people and there's something about San Francisco. There's something <laughs> about the Bay Area. I don't know if it's in the air, the water, but it creates this space for innovation, not only in industries, but in yourself. You're able to be not only a kid forever, <laughs> but also speak for yourself. And you'll find someone, somebody in this town will listen to you. You know, you will always find someone who will listen to you. Um, and so just being here opened up something where it just... I love that you say that because when we talk about the environment, the air, the space... You know, I love where I'm from, Memphis, Tennessee, right? And in particular, North Memphis. I love where I'm from. <laughs> At the same time, there's a denseness in the air. And so when you say certain things or you proclaim certain things, it doesn't have far to go, <laughs> you know? And so in San Francisco, there's this openness in the air where your voice travels farther and it meets someone somewhere not too far away that either resonates or they know someone who resonates, but there's a different environment to be different. Mm -hmm. And so we found us. And that's not to say that there isn't homophobia here. There uh -huh. is, but at the same time, we were able to find a space and find safety um, with people around us. Who look like us. Yeah, to really um, almost not make it a big deal. And that, even that cracking the sky was big. You know, I tell the story about my friend, Ramiel Perez. He was the first person, you know, when I came out to him, he literally jumped up and down and clapped and said, welcome to the family and like celebrated me for three minutes. It was the weirdest experience in that moment, but it was so much farther than I was at the time. And I got to live into his celebration of me for years. And that gave me the space to tighten up and straighten my back over time. So it's the loving spaces, it's the loving people. You know, and then us, you know, being so close and so far away to not yeah. even know that my sister would love me, not even know she's dealing with the same thing. You know, um, it's something that I think we can all learn from. It's never what it seems. And yeah. you can always discover more about someone. You never know everything about someone. Now, one of you is one minute older than the other. Who's the older? <laughs> 
It doesn't mean a thing, guys. She told me everything I know. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you've obviously had that in, in the, the the coming out in common, um, and so much of your lives have obviously been intertwined. But you were he- planning on heading to LA to get into to study film or get into film. What took you both into what you're doing now? I mean, was this? Do you see this as a kind of a natural progression of what your original interest? Or did you get waylaid by San Francisco doing its thing? I think San Francisco did its thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're in film school. We moved here in 2000 from um, Nashville by way of Memphis. And, um, you know, we thought, like I said, the Hughes brothers, right? But then our natural inkling was to bring people together to solve a problem. We just, I guess we're just problem solvers or something. And it's not always easy because, you know, when you set yourself up for that, you get questions that you don't know the answers to, which mean you may have a gap of people being upset or like having something to say or whatever. But anyway, you know, we always... I, I think any conversation we have, we're going to say Ave Montague's mm-hmm. name because she was our connection to Black people in San Francisco. We were tunnel vision in film school. We lived in Freedom West, right in the Fillmore. And, you know, we would catch that five and go right to school and be gone until 2 a.m. Um, and so connecting with her just opened our eyes to the people, hearing her stories, talking about her family, talking about the films, the people that she was having conversations with. Um, She was Ave Montague and Associates, so she was the connector for us all. And she had this amazing film festival, and she just knew everybody. So we started as volunteers, ticket sales managers, and then she trusted us to um, co-executive produce. And I mean, to know Ave, you would know she wasn't doing that with anybody. That was so a big deal. The whole time people were like, you know, Ave won't do this for everybody. <laughs> no, Ave wouldn't do this for everybody. You know, Ave. Even do with this. the ticket booth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest thing she afforded us was a way and the opportunity to put our ideas out there. Yeah. So from creating panel discussions and inviting people to contribute their knowledge, we heard a huge gap. Mm -hmm. And at the time, again, this was the early 2000s, artists didn't have that access to music like we do now. You had to actually pay for it, get somebody on the phone, like it was a different situation. So we really brought visual and audio artists together. We brought business resources to the table and really had everyone see themselves differently in the room. And that sparked this huge community of artists that saw us as an avenue, not only for resources, but for space to do their work, to shine and empower themselves. And then others saw us as the go-to for all these amazing artists. And that's the center. Yeah, I mean, so, African American Art and Culture Complex was one of the biggest yeses we had at a time when we were just flubbing around trying to explain this concept of bringing these artists together. So, you know, going back to Ave and just that core start, our listening is what had us go, we're on a mission now. These artists don't know how to connect, let's do it. And Melora was like, oh, we should do this event. 
where artists come together, blah, blah, blah. They bring their own art. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, that gave us the courage to go to business owners, to go to property owners, to go to restaurants. We had a mission. We weren't Mm -hmm. afraid to. I mean, we went into Virgin Megastore, the Apple Store, got a yes to host this music and film conference celebrating Black Music Month. They stole our idea. (laughs) But, you know, it's still... Sometimes when we're in conversations around money, especially when we first started um, as the co-executive directors, our biggest fear was, are we okay with a fundraise? My God. Like, we knew we could do the programming. We knew we could bring the community together. But Mm -hmm. it was the money piece because of how how everything is laid out here in this city to navigate funding for art and creatives. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but so what what it did was... Reflecting, like, all of these conversations, even with you all, it reminds us of moments where we had no fear. And so we had to step back in that reflection when we first started in this role because really have to generate your passion. You really have to generate, you know, why you why you want this support? Why do you... How will this money impact? And will it just pause here? And so I really want to, I know we talked about how we got here, but that just takes me to the East Bay Community Foundation, <laughs> Lisa Gray, Jeff Jones, and Grace Stanislaus, our biggest advocates who supported us at a time where there was so much uncertainty about the future of this center, the future of how Black creatives are getting support, and when I think about what they created in their Ascend BLO program, it polarized everything you see today and why we're able to have these conversations mm-hmm. um, and why, why we are trusted. We don't always get it right, but why we are trusted to make decisions and so you see, Hakeem. instead of producing film, <laughs> we stepped into producing events, producing opportunities. We learned of the word curator along the way to get that that's a lot of what we were doing with our public program. So that lens of bringing all these different parts together for a total production, even with what we do in our role now, is still living and that desire we had to make film when we came out here. And every time we do an exhibition, every time we do public programming, like some of the events we mentioned earlier, that's that fire that's burning. And lucky for us, there's the technology of virtual reality that we look forward to stepping into and utilizing some of those curatorial skills to put some of that desire of filmmaking out there. So... Stay tuned for that. (laughs) Speaking of producing, programming, curating, bringing people together um, is what I'm hearing is what you love to do. Talk about, you know, what you look for. I mean, what the importance of creating this type of community, especially the Western edition, the neighborhood has changed so much over the years, the decrease of black population in San Francisco and the importance of elevating you know, very particular, specific voices in our community? I think about our start. So that's Rebecca Green and Roosevelt Green. 
two creatives who at one point in time had their peak. Um, in particular, our father, who was the audio engineer for Isaac Hayes, traveled the world. Um, and to, to live in the home and be raised by two creatives who keep trying and sometimes not succeeding and keep trying and keep trying and to live in a city where even though they keep trying, there are two places I can go and see my dad's name. There are albums I can see my dad's name. I know that there is a building that our mom used to own, a consignment shop. There are people who know her all over the city for the work that she did um, as one of the first Black nurses assistant at St. Joseph Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. To see and be impacted by their sadness, their joy, their desire to connect, and again, keep trying. When you live in San Francisco and you come from Memphis, Tennessee, and you think of San Francisco the way the world thinks of San Francisco, and you get here and Black people are not honored for what they have contributed, I can't stop until I see that. Indeed. Bobby Webb, so many people have contributed. Emmett, like, like, I mean, I'm thinking about Emory Douglas, Mama Tarika Lewis. We have people still living whose backs we stand on and stomp on and push down in the ground to where we don't even know their names will be said. Well, the other part is we but dust we don't them off. We dust them off, prop them up, but then we don't see anything. So from top to bottom, we are committed, just like what Melanie described, what we did for BYOA, Bring Your Own Art, back in 2006, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We're always committed that, number one, creators have a space, not only to create, but to share their work. Number two, that we make it easy for them to connect. That number three, we bring resources to the table. Number four, we ask them to share about their work because the more you share about it, it's cool to be the cool, weird artist in the corner, but the more you're able to share and articulate about your work, the more people can understand and you bring them closer, you share your message and it gets out more. And we have people who can attest to that, who were the weird artists in the corner who didn't want to come forward. So our commitment is that as a basic necessity. Now... What are we going to do as a city to honor the legacy of Black creators and visionaries who've done so much to make sure people want to come here? Hmm. People don't want to just come here because of the homes. They come here for the art. They come here for the experiences. They come here for the joy. They come here to be free, to feel weird, and then go back home and be whatever they have to be. But we know what time it is here, and so, you know... That's why we do what we do, because my parents deserved more. They didn't get their full just due. But at least I have a few things I can see, and I don't have that here. I'll let you share, but no, no, that's I, it. That's, that's the core of it. And I think the other part I was speaking to is that we have a tendency 
to resurrect and dust off our luminaries when we need them for programming and when that right month has come around and we want to hear from them, but we don't even know how they're doing. We don't even know if their livelihood is, is livable. We don't know if their quality of life is something that we can be proud of, just even as a place that owns a lot of the PR that a lot of these luminaries hold. So we could do a lot better. And that's the piece that Melora and I really deal with a lot. And so why we always want to make space, why we always want to stand in the place where we can, even in this conversation, say the things that probably might not get said on this platform. But how do we make sure that newer conversations are being had? So thank you for that question. Yeah, and how do we partner with people? Like yeah. for those of you listening, either live or even beyond that, let's talk. Like we really have to have intentional conversations for the changes we say we want to see, unless we want to roll back and be right there. Talk more about that and, and, and the role that art can play in, in starting and maybe directing those conversations, as well as who gets to be the, the, the guider of that or, or the, the, the creator, if you will, of those, the, the art and conversations? Well, I think it depends on who will be impacted, where you are in physical space, you know, and those are the things that people aren't willing to talk about because everybody wants power. Everybody wants to be the, the final word. And sometimes it's not best you're the final word. So it may be a geographic consideration. It may be a socioeconomic consideration. Um, I think people who make a certain amount of money shouldn't have much to say about people who don't have a lot of money. Like, why are you navigating my resources? You don't even understand what it takes for me to walk out the door, you know? So when I mentioned the, the things that need to happen in, in this town, and which I'm sure can reflect in other towns, I really want us to go to work to make the decisions easier other than just leaning on policy. Whatever those things are, it's outdated. And we really got to start looking at quality of life. And then for those who can't seem to get it, imagine it's you. Imagine it's your business. Imagine it's your child. Imagine it's someone you care about if you don't care about yourself or your child, you know? Because you can say, I can say things that don't even resonate, but I really am looking forward to people being willing to stop and pause if we need to in order to make a decision. A lot of times we go off timelines and deadlines. Well, the deadlines is really going to ensure that we're right back here feeling the way we feel, complaining about what, well, about what we're complaining about right now. And that lends itself to, in my eyes, you know, to be really honest, you know, our language is how we cast spells. The repetition of what we say is what we acknowledge, right? So if that is true, then how do we change what we are saying? How do we change what we're chanting and get to a place where we're not um, perpetuating what we know doesn't work? So when we talk about the word work 
in the context that we're in now, we're faced with a lot of people who don't want to go back to work, who have come in touch with something because of this pandemic that is a different calling for how they can be a better expression in this world or a contribution to society. So, like, even as a small example, why not change the word work to contribution? You know, when I and I say that because... We keep using the same systems. We keep using the same tools that are... It's just a reduction of our intuition. It's a reduction of the intelligence we say we should have as a world by now. And so I just think a lot of leaders, a lot of creatives are exhausted um, and don't participate when we talk about systems and who gets to be who in these art spaces and making decisions. It is exhausting to try and be in certain spaces. And I think that's where Malora and I have been really instrumental because we've been willing to say certain things in the room that either have caused things or have people reconsider things that wouldn't have been um, in the space before. So I think we have to acknowledge what people are being put through to participate at a quote-unquote higher scale um, and, and, and really get down to when we look at companies and organizations that have higher budgets, they do not have to do and fulfill the same requirements of other organizations. Why is that? And so it just impacts everything. What it means to do your work when you have 30,000 things to justify from the work you're already going to do, because that's who you are in the community. And so we have to acknowledge the imbalances. We have to acknowledge the psychological impact that's there um, that you have to deal with, um, justifying who you are in the room as a female body person, as a queer person, um, and, and just eliminating those spaces so we can really get down to the gifts we have to share in the world. It's just such an undermining experience when you deal with bureaucracy, when you deal with a lot of fake not understanding and fake not knowing and fake not getting it at this point. We've heard enough music, we've seen enough movies. There's an imbalance of intelligence if we're not getting it at this point. So we just need to have a real reckoning on, on what's okay now at this point. Mm -hmm. Well, I, and, and one thing I want to point out is the very dialogue we just had is a creative just saying what's so. Just like saying what's so flat. Just being very flat about what is so about the context and the things that we need to do or how we need to think. And that's as simple as a creative um, creating a poster that becomes popular that we start to chant or someone who is inspired by a movement and then they create a snapshot painting that we all feel and love and can see forever, or a musician capturing sound in time, where then we use that not only to feel better or be, under, or be understood, but we use that amplified to even project our messages decades later. And so, Tony K. Bombada said, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And we do that every day. But attention, pan attention span is short. Mm -hmm. And that's the issue. 
we're like overly inspired, you know? And so because creatives are such geniuses, we create over and over. You share an idea, we produce. You, you want something creative, we produce. You need somebody to feel good at an event, we produce. You want a drummer, we produce. You need a painting, we produce. You need jewelry, we produce. You want a dress, we produce. And it's still not enough to be invited to the conversation to problem solve. Hmm. Yet I have the genius in my bones and my DNA to create something that makes you feel something. And it's not enough still to invite us to the conversation. And I don't mean just to talk, but to change and change in action. And that's what's needed. So invite more creatives to the table, believe us, listen to us. Even if we say something you don't understand, just pause for a second because you don't know everything. So maybe just consider what I just said is the future that we could live into. Mm-hmm. Beyond resignation. Mm-hmm. So that's what's at stake. Our future is at stake as long as we continue to be wild, other other than listen to. People are so wild by creatives, very temporarily. Mm-hmm. But when will we be honored enough to be in the conversations? And we all can think about five different people around us who we need to be asking what to do. Um, We've got a question in our Zoom gallery. And if, uh, Carolyn, uh, you want to ask your question? Sure. Hi, Melanie and Melora. I do have a question since we are throwing out quotes. Um, Harold Cruz said in the crisis of the Negro intellectual, he talked about the importance of the artist and how it wasn't the politicians who create change and who create policy, but it's really the artists who create policy. And we know that San Francisco is not only a very creative place, but it's also a very political place. And you've talked a lot about the role of um, artists um, in movement building and leading. Can you talk a little bit more about how important they are to politics and creating policy and creating change? I think artists are critical because they create the awareness. They make the information digestible for a lot of people um, who really, like I said, it goes to that participation. Some people don't want to participate in all of the the drama, the the red tape, the wiggly-woo, the information, how it's shared. It's just a lot. And so artists create the awareness. They create the safe space to discover and learn and see how you feel about it. Um, and also creating a place to stand. You know, the, the language in the poetry, the language in the, the powerful speeches, the image that moves you enough to get into the street or write something or call someone or say something or speak out or stop something from happening All of that is where you stand. How you really perform or not is still in action. And so I think that artists really ground us constantly and give us a temperature. Artists also archive us and keep us on pace. No, last year you said this because this is what we said. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And so there's accountability within the artists and the work that we provide, you know. (laughs) <laughs> okay, we have another question from our Zoom audience. Uh, Corey, go ahead. 
Hi, thank y'all for sharing the space. Um, so as I'm hearing y'all talk, I'm hearing a lot of like Amiri Baraka's The Revolutionary Theater, um, a lot of W.E. Du Bois's like elements of Black theater where they're talking about how theater should force change, how the community should be brought into dialogue with itself, um, honoring artists and ancestors that came before. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the role of, I guess, spirituality in the presentation of your work, not only the visual 2D art, but like how, um, I guess, spirituality plays in the programming, because as we know, like, the experience of Black joy is a spiritual experience. So I was just wondering how that weaves into like what you guys do. The first thing it does is ground us to be able to even do the work um, and protects us to be able to do the work. And I think that our ability, let me just say, everyone should be able to have their own spiritual practice for however it works, however it amplifies um, your life. And so, you know, I think that the work that we do specifically is being that barometer and balance and being that, that voice that will say the truth, even if it's not an easy truth to share, and there's there's a way that you can connect with anybody, regardless of race, regardless of beliefs. There's a way that you can connect with anybody, and it definitely takes that grounding. It definitely takes being able to center yourself and ask the right questions or even for me chanting and I'm sharing what I'm sharing only to say when I think about the specific programs that we have there's no separation of spirit when you have black people gather I mean it's just it's already ritual you know what I mean? Like, even if even if there's a different belief, when I'm centering myself and thinking about our classes and I think about our programs and I think about um, the performances, there's this element of spirituality all the way from thinking about being in Memphis where, you know, you're in this Kojic church and there's an, an amen over there or mm-hmm over there. Uh, or clap over here, I can get that in a meeting with us. I can get that in by listening in karate class when they celebrate the young people. I can get that. I got that this weekend at Juneteenth when people celebrated and amplified not only the performers, but the carousel is going up and, and there are people cheering but also the people in line are anticipating. So there's this energy and it just pulls you over to what's over there or what's over here. And so I hope I'm answering your question. I think too, what you're pointing at is there's no separation. Like one of the things Melora and I acknowledge is that 
we're just as much spiritual as we are human, right? So if I acknowledge both parts of myself, there's a piece of that that I can access when we're in the room having these meetings and having these conversations that are challenging. There's a part of me that I can access that doesn't get overrun by the humanness that's happening. It's like, what am I committed to in this moment? What do I really want to happen? What is my, why am I here spiritually? And that keeps me a little more on track than if I just let that go. And I want it to be right in the room. Like that, that doesn't take you very far. So I think acknowledging both like the whole of who we are and acknowledging that, yeah, we're on a spiritual journey. Why am I here? Okay, if I'm here for this to work, then I need to access different parts of myself from my personality, from my attitude, my tone. And we know all of those things can really make conversations go awry. They have killed agreements. They have killed opportunities for things to move forward. So when we talk about spirituality, I think it's really been that access to rise above kind of what's happening in the moment that can be a distraction to the growth and the beauty we really want to see. Thank you so much. I'm so, <laughs> I feel very inspired, but also, you know, very much a part of the, the change that both of you are, that you do, that you're working on. Um, a lot of people are talking about a new renaissance that's about to happen in San Francisco, right? There was a little bit of an exodus of uh, human beings who left the Bay Area, but because of the pandemic, there might be a situation in which artists can come back or, you know, certain people who had oh, left yeah. would love to hear your thoughts about this new renaissance. And in my opinion, I feel like you've been creating the renaissance right there, in the Western edition in your own communities. And it's just going to expand and explode to everyone else who didn't catch it, didn't realize it. It's like a seed, right? I mean, you say that right now, and there are about 50 people that are go, you don't see what's going on in the Western edition. Ain't nobody over there. Ain't no black people. Ain't no this. Ain't no that. And like, okay, it's a seed though. So what are we watering right now? And the issue with, it's not the people. I've met some amazing people in tech when, before we even got the job at the center, I was driving for Lyft, pitching our virtual reality lab and thinking that every techie that got in the car would be rude and all the other things that we've used, not so much the case. I say that because human being to human being, they really were so generous. It totally just annihilated what I thought. Now, I'm not telling people to pull down their banners and everything that said all the things that they said about tech in general, but what I will say if we don't learn anything else, we have to train people how to treat us. We have to train people on how to be in this city if we want this city to be what we say it used to be. And I mean a place that embraces creatives of all races, that honors people of color's legacy. I mean, there are murals I can't even find anymore in the mission. There are businesses that deserve to still be here. Why can I go to New York and see the same 100-year-old blah, 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 and here that's not the case? So how are we going to train people how to treat us? And if you don't like the word train, 
put in your own word? And how are we going to make it affordable for creatives to be here? And I don't know if that's a city thing or landlords just simply saying, I want to be a part of change and I really want to make my space available for creatives. And you know what I mean? And so that's, that's the first thing. And I think also looking at the quality of life, we've already talked about the experience of people of color during Pride, but there's also the experience of people of color in restaurants, the experience of people of color in shopping centers, the experience of people of color in all these different places. So how do we create just a whole culture shift? You know, someone's gonna someone's gonna get it right. Why why not it be us? You know, why do we have to keep looking to other spaces to figure out how they did it when we all know what to do? You know what I mean? So I think people will come if it's affordable. Let's do that. I think people will come if they feel safe. Let's do that. And so I look forward to it because I need that melanin. I look forward to the innovation um, <laughs> that will be a offspring of that. And I look forward to, like Melora said, really learning for what we went through. <laughs> we can't price our city out the game and expect to keep a lot of the genuine core pieces that, you know, really make this city what it is. We mentioned at the beginning of the program that you two were selected as the, by the community as the Grand Marshals for the 2021 San Francisco Pride. Um, what does that mean for you? And uh, do you get a crown? I mean, what happens? <laughs> Honestly, it means we, we have the opportunity to be in conversations like this, to elevate names of people who are luminaries to us, to elevate conversations we think are important, um, to highlight concerns, issues, solutions, ways that we can come together and make something anew, but at least put it out there. And so we've had this opportunity in several different places because of this title, this role, this opportunity, and it's been an honor um, to say, you know, what we feel and how we see things and what we expect from the future. You know what? I just have to share this. You know what it's been like? It's been like seeing your favorite artist come out on stage and you're just about to cheer. It's at your venue. You're just about to cheer. Woo! And then someone touched his arm and said, there's a flood in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, woo, girl, we want, huh? What? They said what? They didn't do what? All right, well, we're going to start talking about this then because, you know what I mean? Like, we, we're celebrating and we're excited, but there's so much to be said, <laughs> so much truth to tell to where it's like, woo, huh? Okay, well, all right. You know, yeah. it's great, though. It's been amazing. And, and you know, I think I shared this with, um, with you at some point, uh, Michelle, just how... If anything, it's been a gift for us to recognize the work we've done. When you do this work, it's never enough. <laughs> it really isn't. You know, like even to have this conversation, there is a fire to put out. You know, there's a conversation that needs to be had. There's someone waiting on an answer. There's a ripple of the twins don't get back to you. We're doing this. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, um, but it gave us the space to pause and really reflect, like, wow, okay. We've done we've done some things. Yes, there's a road ahead, and yes, there are other things to do, but let people celebrate you. I mean, that was hard. That was really, really hard, to be honest with you. So I just appreciate whatever ancestors whispered in somebody's ear to say something because it gave us a sense of joy in a moment where it's been really, really rough. Mm. So mm. I just want to make sure I said well, we're winding down on time, and this has been such an incredible afternoon spending time with you and celebrating both of you and your work. Um, I think my last question really has to do with something that you had mentioned before the program started, which is you know, wanting or, or needing to focus on the future. I think many of us are thinking about the future. And so if you could leave us with you know, some motivational words in thinking about the future, uh, let's do that. Let's let's hear from Melanie and Melora on focusing on the future. Hmm. You know, when I think about focusing on the future, I just ask that we all take a moment to imagine a pride experience where you look around and there's a sea of black and brown people free in our bodies, dancing, walking into a, excuse me, several black and brown owned spaces just for us to be able to be safe and loved, right? Um, Where people step in when they see something being done harmful to anybody, but in particular, black, trans bodies we far too often ignore and act like we don't hear or act like we didn't see somebody heard and saw something i imagine a space where young people are asking questions about sexuality that's not punished where they find safe people to be inquisitive about and around that's not predatory, that is safe, that their questions are honored and valued, that they find their own resources in their own way, that our seniors are loved and amplified and their names are being said and, you know, we're reading about them, we're visiting them, we're we're taking it upon ourselves to visit a queer senior. What are the odds of family and everything? I, I mean, at 43, I'm thinking about that right now. I don't have to. So, you know, just a way that we're sharing love and it's automatic. And in a space where we have time, we're not working three, four, five jobs to make it, you know? Yeah. And I'll just add, you know, the whole context of a future, you know, where wonder is appreciated, where there is no need for quote-unquote safety, you know, you just, your birthright, (laughs) like you get to live into your birthright, which is having your basic needs met and being able to create a life that you imagine without um, all of these fixed frameworks 
of who you need to be or must be or don't get to be and all of that. Just a world of being where we really are expressed more through our gifts than our gender. I'm so mm. over gender. I'm so over it. It frames and, and it keeps us from really, I keep saying the word love and I don't want it to come off hokey, but it really keeps us from loving one another. It keeps us from being in touch. I think one of my biggest dreams is that we identify through our gifts versus gender. It's just so tired. It doesn't do anything for what you can add to a room. Yes, intuition. Yes, all these other things. But that lives in so many spaces. And so I just wish we could just be and, and people trust who you say you are, what you say you do, your story. And there's full circle value that you aren't valued in your young, shiny 20s. And no one thinks about you after 65. Full circle value. Like wisdom becomes a whole thing. So we at our elders' feet and we want to take care of them. That's the future I would love to see. She is one minute older. So you notice she's really focusing on the older thing. <laughs> really, I've been working on this all my life, okay? <laughs> well, just, okay, so for everyone who's watching this and maybe had not known about you and your, your works before this, where can they go online to find more about the Arts and Culture Center? Yes, yeah. yeah, so they can visit our website, aaacc.org. You can also stop by 762 Fulton Street, right between Webster and Buchanan. We'd love to see you visit our space. Um, and our Instagram as well, A-A-A-C Complex. Great. <laughs> That's so awesome. Thank you to you both so much for everything Thank that you. you do. And also congratulations on being the community's pick for Grand Marshals for this year, uh, San Francisco Pride. Happy Pride to you both. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. And thank you. And shout out to all of the other Grand Marshals, too. I just yes. want to make sure I say that. Yeah. And thanks to you all for joining us. And happy Pride. And so, John. Thanks again to our, our speakers. And thanks to all of you for watching or listening to us online. You can find out more programs that we have coming up, both in person and online, at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. So take care, stay safe, and we'll see you in the future.